Okay, <laughs> praise God. Uh, yeah, we don't really teach that kind of stuff here, but uh, yeah, but the Lord has His ways of taking care of us when we honor Him. Amen. Okay, we are uh, in the middle of a series, a series called "The One Thing." Uh, the aim is to kind of focus our hearts and focus our attention as we begin this new year uh, on the things that really matter in life, and then to reorient our lives around those things. We saw that uh, the Apostle Paul, his one desire, the one thing he desired was, man, I want to throw everything aside in order that I might know Jesus more. Uh, We saw through uh, Mary's example that uh, in the midst of a world and lives filled with so many distractions, uh, only one thing is needed. That's a relationship with Jesus, to sit at his feet and to love him. We saw last week Uh, in the life of a religious, rich, young ruler, uh, that the most important thing isn't having all of these things, but what really matters is that you understand how much you need Jesus and how much uh, we surrender our lives to him. We never lose when we do that. Today, I want to continue looking at one thing, and we have two more weeks left this week and next week, but I want to look at one thing, and it comes again in in a specific context, comes in the context of a life Uh, of a king named David, and he's living in a very fearful time. I have a a book at home, actually, our kids have a book at home. It's called Once When I Was Scared. Has anyone read this book, Once When I Was Scared? It's a uh, kind of a classic kid's book about this uh, little boy who lives in the woods with his mom, and it takes place in the winter, like cold winter night, and they've run out of coal for the furnace. And so his mom sends him to the neighbor's house, which he has to go all through the woods in order to get to because they don't live anywhere near civilization. So he has to go through the woods to get to someone's house in the midst of the cold in order to get the coal and bring it back home. And he's very scared. And the plot thickens and the tension is heightened because a massive storm is brewing. And the question is, how will this boy overcome his fears and get the coal and make it back home alive? It's a uh, really wonderful book because it highlights two things. One, it talks about how we can overcome our fears. And two, it talks about the reality that every single one of us will face fears in our lives. It is one of the most common emotions in the human experience. And part of me wishes, a lot of me wishes, that that book was around for me when I was a little boy. Because when I was a kid, I had a lot of fears. In between fifth and sixth grade, so uh, in Virginia where I grew up, uh, sixth grade was part of elementary school. So middle school was only two years, seventh and eighth grade. So in between fifth and sixth grade, so for the last year of elementary school, my family moved from Herndon, which was kind of like a middle-class suburb, to Reston, which was a developing area that used to be a very, uh, a, a place where shady people lived. There was prisons, there was a, our high school, South Lakes High School, used to be a prison because of all of the kind of people that lived around there. And so in sixth grade, the elementary school that I went to was called Dogwood Elementary School, and it was surrounded by a lot of shady neighborhoods, and I went to school in that neighborhood. And so you can imagine in between fifth and sixth grade, spending my last year in elementary school amongst people I didn't know and people who were very scary uh, was a difficult thing for me. Uh, I went to school scared because I didn't know people. I didn't know if I'd have friends. And there were these three particular guys, three guys in particular, who were the bullies of sixth grade and the bullies of the school, right? One of their guys was named Lucio Cabrera. 
Another guy was named Robert Lambert, and another guy was named Howard Robinson, but they called him Retta. I don't know why his name was Retta, but that was his name. <clears throat> and these three guys would just, every day, they would just terrorize people. They would run around and they would punch people. They like beat kids. It doesn't matter if you're Asian, Latino, black, or white. It doesn't matter who you were. It doesn't matter if you were cool or not. It doesn't matter if you were big or small. It doesn't matter if you had money or didn't have money. They just go around and they run through the halls and they would uppercut you in the ribs or they'd punch you in the back. Or, or when you're walking, they would like slap you upside the head. And everybody was scared of them. I don't know why you're laughing at this. This is like scary for me. Every day, sixth grade, I go to school scared. And you only had three options. One, you get beat up by them. Two, you join them and beat other kids up, which I wasn't going to do because then I'd get beat up by other kids. Or three, you do your best to avoid them. And so I tried my best to avoid them. When they went this way, I'd go that way. They were in the library, which I don't know why they'd be in the library, but they'd be in the library, uh, maybe to beat up like nerds like me. Uh, I would avoid the library at all costs. When they were in the lunch line, I'd wait until they got through the lunch line until so, before I went into the lunch line. Everything they did, I did all that I could in order to avoid being where they were. Until some way through, I realized, you know what, I'm smarter than those guys, and they're dropping out of school. I can help them by tutoring them and teaching them how to read. And so I got on their good side, and they stopped beating me up because I, uh, they knew that they couldn't, like, beat up their tutor or else they'd fail and stay in sixth grade again. And so I realized how I could outsmart them. But the reality of fear in my life was that it paralyzed me to the point where I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. And I realized at that point, that if I didn't deal with this fear, that it was going to debilitate me and paralyze me from doing the things that I was supposed to do in life. Can I ask you a question this morning? What are you afraid of today? Because it is a universal experience, isn't it? What are you afraid of this morning? Listen, some of you are afraid going to school tomorrow because there's people like Lucio and Retta and Robert waiting for you. Right, people who wait around your locker and they hover around you. Some of you are afraid to go home today because you've got to have a conversation with your parents about something that they know that you guys haven't talked about yet and that scares you. Some of you are afraid to go to work tomorrow because of that coworker or that boss or that person who comes around every day and, and checks on you and they give you just a miserable time every time you go to work. Some of you are afraid because the end of the month is coming and you've got bills to pay and you don't have enough money in your bank account to pay those bills. Some of you are afraid to check the mail tomorrow or afraid to check the mail because those applications that you put in or those job things that you put in, you're going to hear back either in the mail or over email or whatever it is, and you're scared to check those things because you're afraid of what might happen. What are you afraid of this morning? Because fear is a universal experience. In fact, one of the most common experiences that we go through in life. What are you afraid of and how do we deal with these things? I want to look at one thing that David talks about in Psalm 27. Okay, Psalm 27 is a psalm of David. And in a way, this is David penning his own book, Once When I Was Scared. And it tells us what he did and how he overcame those fears and how we can do the same through the hope of Christ in uh, Psalm 27, we're just going to read verses 1 through 5. It says it's a psalm of David, the great king, the second king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel that led during the, the high point of Israel's existence. I'm going to read Psalm 27, verses 1 through 5, and this is God's word as it speaks to all of us who do, who will, who have, who constantly struggle with this idea of fear in our lives. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. This is God's word. Verse 1 tells us that this is a psalm of fear, right? Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So verse 1 is telling us, hey, we're talking about fear here. Verse 2 tells us about the universality of fear, that it is inevitable that at some point in our lives we will be afraid. He says, when evil men advance, when my enemies attack, uh, though an army besiege, though war break out against me. He's not saying if these things happen. He's saying these are clear and present reality. He's not speaking in hypotheticals. He's not talking about maybe potentially this will happen. He's saying, this is my existence. This is my story. This is where I am. And yet at the beginning of the psalm, he's fearful. At the end of the psalm, he's confident. And what happens in between in the verses that we read are of utmost and extreme importance for any of us who struggle with fear. Because here's the reality. You know what the most often stated command in the Bible is? It's fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In some variation, in Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren says, 365 times there is this command, don't be afraid. Because the Bible knows, and God who is our author of life and the creator of our lives understands us, that there is in every day of the year something that causes us to be afraid, and we have to be ready in order that we would not fear. We need to be reminded every day that we we wake up, whatever fear confronts us, whatever may pass, whatever lies before me, don't be afraid, fear not. And so David tells us how he does this. Three thoughts I want to bring out from these these five verses, and um, if you read the rest of the psalm, it, it continues in this vein. But the first thing is this, where you look when you're afraid it what, is what matters most. <clears throat> Where you look when you're afraid is what matters most. I don't, uh, uh, well, I don't watch a lot of movies. Olivia uh, get, gets to watch more movies. She likes watching movies more than I do. Uh, so I don't watch many movies. When we try to watch movies together, I usually, like 80, 80% of the movies that we watch together, I fall asleep about 45 minutes into it. And so she gets upset because I have to keep rewinding and, and I have to ask her what happened. And she's like, do you want to just start all over? And so she gets frustrated with me. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, we decided to watch a movie because it, it like, a lot of acclaim to it, 99% on Rotten Tomatoes and uh, not the kind of movie that we, we typically watch because it's a horror movie that was billed as a comedy. I don't know why it's called a comedy. Because it was called a comedy, we thought it would be fun to watch. And so um, 
I'm not endorsing it. It's R-rated, especially if you're underage. I don't, I don't endorse it. Even if you are of age, I don't, I don't think just because the law legislates that you can watch it, that you ought to watch it as a child of God. We have to be discerning. All that to say, the movie is called Get Out. Okay? <clears throat> it's a movie called Get Out. It's supposed to be a comedy. That's what the thing says. Uh, but it's a horror movie. It's a thriller. And it was really scary. Like a few minutes into watching it, we're like, man, this is really creepy. Do you want to watch this? And one of us wanted to stop, but the other one wanted to keep going. And um, we stopped it for a little bit, and we said, let's just read the plot summary on Wikipedia and just read all about it. And then, and then as we're reading, we're like, ah, okay, let's just watch it. So we watched it on mute with subtitles so that nothing jumpy would scare us. So we're watching this movie, and there's one character in particular. I don't think the the movie itself is scary, but there's one character in the movie that scares me, and she haunts me, even to this day. (laughs) I've told a few of you guys this, and you guys think it's ridiculous, but there's this lady in the movie named Georgina, right? Georgina is creepy to the max, like exponentially creepy, right? She's like, it's just weird. You, if, you, if you Google Georgina from Get Out and Google image it, you'll see what I'm talking about. But she's freaky, deaky, scary-looking lady. Like just a normal-looking lady, but uh, she's always smiling. You know, like people who are always smiling can be kind of creepy, right? Like, you know, like, like Chucky from Child's Play, that, that doll that's always smiling. When you're smiling and you shouldn't be smiling, like, that's scary, There's one scene in this movie where Georgina is smiling, but she's really not supposed to be smiling. She's like crying as she's smiling. Like that's creepy stuff. She's like smiling and she's saying, no, no, no. And this like tear comes out of her eye. So she's like smiling and then she's crying and then she's smiling again. It's like really weird, creepy stuff. Like every time Georgina comes out, I'm like, oh, this like weird lady. And throughout the movie, she does all these weird things. I'm going to, if you don't want to, for the next five seconds, if you don't want to hear a spoiler, um, then cover your ears. But um, she's like in a trance, right? And she she looks like she's in a trance. So she's looking at things, but looks like she's looking at like nothing in in particular. These like hollow dead eyes. And and she's smiling this like weird, weird, weird smile. You can open your ears now. Not that you could hear me if your ears were covered. But she does these weird things like, I don't know why this is weird, but she's pouring, she's pouring milk into a cup, and the milk starts spilling over, and, and it's, like, really weird. It's, like, scary. Uh, there's another part where uh, she's, like, this guy really needs his cell phone because this house is a place he should not belong. He needs to get out, and he needs to call people, but she unplugs his cell phone so the battery dies. And he's, like, who did this? And then Georgina shows up, and he's, like, oh, my gosh, so weird, so creepy. One scene, it's like the dark of night, and the guy, the, the character who needs to get out because he's in trouble, uh, can't sleep, and so he goes outside, and it's like dark night, it's pitch black, right? this weird guy comes running, runs by him, that's like scary too, but there's this other scene, <laughs> I'm telling you the whole movie so you don't have to watch it, but there's this other scene, like other part in that movie, right, where uh, in that scene where it's dark, he's standing outside, And then all of a sudden it shifts to this window and there's this yellow light on and Georgina's looking out the window. You're like, oh my gosh. So every time, every time Georgina comes on in the movie, I'm like, Olive, tell me when she's gone. I was like turning away. I couldn't look. I couldn't look at her because she's so scary. No joke. I don't, I usually don't get scared about things like that. 
Like, I get scared when things scare me, like a, a, a raccoon jumps out in the middle of the road. Things like that scare me. Georgina, people don't usually scare me, but one night after we watched that movie, I couldn't go to sleep because I, I thought for whatever reason Georgina is going to show up in my house, and I got so scared. It was creepy, man. This was like haunting my dreams. And so whenever she came out in the movie, I said, Olive, can you tell me when she's gone? And I was like turning around so I couldn't watch. Because the most important thing when you're afraid is where you're looking. Because you understand something. When you're afraid of something, you shouldn't look at that thing that you're afraid of. Doesn't mean we ignore our fears. Doesn't mean that we pretend that they're not there. But the more you stare at your fears when you're afraid of something, the more we're going to become slaves to that fear and the more we become paralyzed by that fear. David's going through a situation here in verse 2 where he talks about the things that he's dealing with. And we don't know specifically what they are, but here's what he says. Evil men advance against me. Okay, so you've got people who are not just people, not nice people, not good people, not church people, but evil people are coming at him. Okay, evil people are literally advancing against him. And he says, they come to devour my flesh. So the way that he pictured, they're not cannibals, he's, but he's, he's figuratively saying they're like beasts, they're like animals who are coming to kill me. That's what he's facing, and he's afraid of that. And he says, when my enemies and my foes attack me. So he's under serious attack. So some people are saying it's Saul, the king before him, who wanted to kill him. Other people said it's his son who wanted the throne, wanted the kingship. Other people say it's the Philistines who are attacking, and during David's reign, the Philistines who are bad enemies would attack him, and they would constantly come against him in war, and David would always have to fight against him. He would beat them, but they would regroup, and they would come back. Enemies against me, he says in verse 3, though an army besieged me, the war break out against me. These are the things that are coming up against David, and he's saying, these are the, this is the present reality of my life. I'm scared of these things. These things are real. These things are honest challenges in my life. And yet he's saying in the midst of all that, my heart will not fear. Even then will I be confident. As you think about the situations in your life today that cause you fear, where are you looking? Here's what some of us do. Here's what a lot of us do. A lot of us stare at those fears and we get paralyzed by them. We think about the things that we need to do. We think about the things and then we begin talking about them. See, you know what? It's never going to get better. You know what? My my parents are always going to be fighting. You know, I'm afraid that my parents are going to divorce. And that's what we do. We constantly fixate upon these fears. We think about the fact that, you know what, I'm never going to get into grad school. I'm never going to get a job. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think God wants this for me. I don't think I'm ever going to be happy. I don't think I'm ever going to be with somebody. I don't think I'll ever have the, 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 the longings of my heart fulfilled. And we stare at these fears, and it paralyzes us from doing anything. And what David is trying to say is what matters most when you're afraid is where you look. Because so many times this is what we do. We think about the things we're afraid of and we constantly play out those fearful scenarios in our mind. The worst case scenario. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to solve this problem? And instead of looking to God, which David says we ought to do, we gaze at our problems. We gaze at our fears. You know this. If you're standing on top of a high mountain and your fear is heights, 
You don't constantly stare down and say, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. Oh my gosh, I'm so scared. They would say, then don't look down. If you're afraid of snakes, right, you don't go around and you say, oh, I'm going to go Google snakes on my computer, on my phone because, oh, I just have this like morbid fascination with my fears. You don't do that. This is where you look, what you look at when you're afraid is what matters most. And a lot of times when we get paralyzed by fear, this is what we're doing. We're staring down our fears and we're stuck in that place. And we can't move on from that. Man, we, all, we look over at our financials over and over and over. We, we don't know how it's going to work out. And it debilitates us. Right? Here's what David is saying. If you're afraid of something, right, don't gaze upon those things. Don't stare those things down. That's huge. That's important. But here's what a lot of us do. Instead of, we, we understand that we know that part, but what David is going to say in just a second, it's not just what we ought not to look at, but we have to look at the right things. But what we oftentimes do is we refrain from looking at the things that cause us fear, but then we look at other things that distract us from actually overcoming those fears. So what do we do? Well, I'm afraid of that test tomorrow. I'm afraid to face the music. And so maybe... Uh, uh, let me call up my friends and let's go out and get some boba tea. <laughs> or uh, why don't we, uh, let's go on social media and let's, let, let's see what you know, people are posting today. Or hmm, maybe, uh, maybe I'll go listen to some music and, and watch some TV and watch some basketball highlights. Or maybe I'll go get some alcohol and drink a little bit and I'll stop thinking about my fears. Or maybe I'll, I'll go to my friend and I'll start talking to him and, and, and then we'll go out and, and we'll do... Or, or maybe I'll just binge watch Star Wars. Hey, honey, let's go watch Star Wars. There's like nine movies out. Let's just watch them all in a row. Isn't that why we procrastinate? For many of us, the heart of procrastination is fear. That I'm afraid to do this thing that looks so difficult. Or I'm afraid to have that hard conversation with somebody. And so I'll delay it by doing all these other things. I'll set up meetings with all these other people so I don't have to face the music and talk to that guy. Oh, I'm scared of, of telling my boss that I'm ready to, to quit. And so I'll just stay here for another six months. And we procrastinate that which should have been done a lot sooner. But here's a problem where we distract ourselves from our fears and look at other things which are not the one thing, then those fears inevitably come back, don't they? And we have to face them at some point. The first thing that David is saying is what you look at when you're afraid right, is what matters the most. The second thing that he says then, second thing that he says, he says gazing at God is the one thing that, will, that allows you to face any fear with confidence. Gazing at God is the one thing that allows you to face any fear with confidence. You remember who's writing? It says at the beginning, of, uh, uh, right before verse 1, it says, of David. You remember who David is? He's the king. If there's anyone that has resources at his disposal, it's David. Okay, one commentator, and if you, if you read a broad cross-section of, of who David was as a, as a young boy... He fought off bears and lions in protecting his sheep. He's the one with a slingshot who slayed the giant Goliath of the Philistines. He's the one who musically was so gifted that when he played the harp, or I don't know how the harp is played, when he played the harp, right, evil spirits were chased away from King Saul. And it was David who wrote the great majority of the Psalms in the Psalter. 
Right? This is David. The commentaries say that he had the hand-eye coordination of an elite Olympic athlete. He was a poetic genius in the ilk of Shakespeare. He was this kind of a person. He was musically as gifted as someone like Beethoven. This is who David was. But instead of relying on himself in the midst of fear, he says, this one thing I will do. He says it in verse 4. What does he do? He says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And here it is, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple for, right, because in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. See, this, I, we may have heard this before. This one thing, I, one thing I ask, one thing I seek is to see you, right? It's a song. It didn't sound like a song when I just said it, but it's a song, right? And that song comes out of a particular context here. And this context before and after is talking about the fearful situations that he faces. It's not just a simple desire that I just want to see God. He wants to see God, but the reason he wants to is because he understands that this is how I overcome the fear in my life. Man, uh, my parents will never approve of this relationship that I'm in. And so we constantly think about those things. But he's saying, go first to God. Here's what he's saying. A lot of us and you've heard this before, gaze at the problem, right? Sustained, focused, fixed, long time looking, gazing, longing for looking at that thing and glancing at God. God help me as I go into this meeting, I'm scared to death. Oh my gosh, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. We glance at God and we gaze, sustained, fixed, focused, look at our problems. Here's what David is saying. You want to overcome fear, you glance at your problem, and then you gaze at God. Sustained, fixed, focused. Here's what, here's what he's saying. You cannot hurry through overcoming fear. Some of us are so afraid because we don't look at God. We're constantly fixated upon the things that are causing us fear. We glance at God. We glance at Him when we come together here. But we don't give Him the time of day to overcome these fears. There's not this like, oh, I'm so afraid, and, 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 but being in God's presence, I'm a little less afraid. He's, he's not saying that. He's like, you know what? My heart will not fear. Even then, I am confident. There's no fear in him anymore. It's like fear knocked at his door, God answered, and nobody was there. That's what he's saying. Right? Some of us live in so much fear of the future, fear of the unknown, fear of failure, because we're not getting close into the presence of God. The closer you are to God, the smaller your fears will be. The further you are from God, the bigger your fears will be. That's it. Right, you could tweet that, you could whatever that, but that's, that, I mean, it's simple. He's saying don't gaze at your problems and glance at God. He says gaze at God and then glance at your problems. Where are you looking in the midst of your fears? Because he, he, I love what he says in verse 1. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This is what David does not say, right? Two things. It's huge. Right? You, could, you could dissect verse 1 and go on and on and on and on for days about this. But he doesn't say, the Lord gives me light in a dark place. He gives me salvation in great danger. He gives me a stronghold when I'm in trouble. He says, the Lord is these things. He is my light. He is my salvation. He is my stronghold. But then look at what he says. He doesn't say the Lord is light, the Lord is salvation, the Lord is stronghold. He says the Lord is mine, my light, my salvation, my stronghold. He's not talking in theoreticals like, hey, you know what? I heard that God can do this for you. He can do this for me if I am in times of trouble. And so I'm going to test it out here. But he's saying over and over and over and over again, I've been afraid. I was afraid when I was a shepherd and the animals came against me. I was afraid when Saul was tormented by demons and he came against me. I was afraid when all of these things happened, when my son wanted to chop off my head. I was afraid when I stood before the giant Goliath. But the Lord is my light. He is my salvation. He's my stronghold. And I've seen this over and over and over. So even when these enemies are attacking me, even now I'll be confident. Because he understood this. He understood how personal God is as his fortress, his refuge. And he said, if these things are true, and because these things are true, no matter how dark the night, no matter how fearful the night, I don't need to be afraid because he's my light. No matter how stormy the night is, I don't need to be afraid. No matter how bad the tornado, the hurricane is, I don't need to be afraid because he's my stronghold. And no matter how oppressive the danger is, I'm confident in God that I'm going to live to see tomorrow because he is my salvation. And he said, I'm small, I'm little, but me plus God, all of a sudden, I become the favorites. Even if it's the New England Patriots, the favorites against me, Even though I'm the underdog, as long as God is with me, God plus me always becomes the favorite. Do you believe this? Like, do you have that kind of faith? That whatever fears you have, if God is with you, and if you are with God, then you're never the underdog. You're never the underdog. In March, uh, March 28, 1990, right, Chicago Bulls, NBA, Cleveland Cavaliers, Michael Jordan, uh, arguably one of the, the, the three best players ever to play the game of basketball. Michael Jordan on that night, uh, it was an overtime game. The, the Bulls won by four points. He scored 69 points. He was dominant, unstoppable. Later after the game, he would say, this had to be the greatest game I've ever played in my whole life. At 69 points, his career high. Also in that game, there's a man named Stacy King, and you, you may have heard about this, but Stacy King was a rookie out of Oklahoma that year. He was a scrub. He was no good. He took four shots that game. He missed all of them. One of them, he got fouled, so he got to shoot two free throws. He missed the first one. He's like, man, I've missed every shot I've taken. He had one more free throw. He made the free throw. He was so happy. Nobody else cared, but ah, I got my one point. Game ended, 117-113, Bulls beat the Cavaliers. Everyone is talking about Michael Jordan, dominant performance, performance for the ages. All these reporters are around him trying to get there. But one reporter couldn't get to Michael Jordan, and so little Stacy King, rookie, sitting all by himself. He said, let's go talk to him. What, what was it like to be on the court when this most dominant performance of the greatest player 
in that generation who's ever lived until that point in time, what was it like to be there? And they put the mic in front of Stacey King. He said, I'll never forget this night because this was a game where Michael Jordan and I combined to score 70 points. <laughs> That's crazy. One point, Michael Jordan, 70 points. That, he realized, man, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> hey, I could, be, I could be destroyed by that. I could be shaking in my boots, but as long as I've got Michael Jordan with me, man, I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be afraid. And how many of us understand that we've got someone infinitely, like he, God has never lost. He's never lost, and every game is a game of his life. Like, that's God. But some of the bulls are shaking in their boots because they're looking at other teams, forgetting that they got Michael Jordan on their side. And this is what we do a lot, too. We're shaking in our boots in fear because we fail to realize that the undefeated grave robber is on our side. Actually, we're on his side. And if God is for us, man, who can be against us? And if God is for you, right, what fear, what concern, what trial, what overwhelming anxiety can overwhelm you if you've got God? And here's his confidence in verse 5. This is how God's going to rescue. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high Upon a rock. Right? Here's what he's saying. He'll keep me safe in his dwelling, in the shelter of his tabernacle. Sometimes the storm is going to come, and it will come hard, but he will shelter me in the midst of the storm. That's what he says. Sometimes he doesn't stop the storm from coming, but he becomes the shelter over me. And then he says, at other times, he will set me high upon a rock so that when the oceans rise and thunders roar, I will soar with him above the storm. He sets our feet on a higher rock so that we're not overcome by the fears and the circumstances that come against us. Not only is it important where you look, but he's saying gazing upon God is the one thing, guys, it's the one thing that will allow you to face any fear with confidence. The second thing and the last thing. That one thing, okay, that one thing isn't just a cure for fear. Right, this is your lifelong desire. It's our lifelong desire. David doesn't just say, one thing I ask, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord during this time of trouble. He says, all the days of my life. For all the days of his life, he's like, this is what I long for. This is my desire. This is my hope. This is... In the midst of your fear, okay, if you're afraid of whatever it is that you're afraid of today, if you could ask for one thing, what do you ask for? Some of us, hey, God, help me just to get into a school, any school. I don't care. I just don't want to be stuck here. I just want, I don't want to be stuck in my current stand. I just want to get in, just give me anywhere. Or get me any job. I don't care, God, just give me a job. I'm scared. I'm not going to get a job. Or, 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 or God, I just help that person who, who hates me. Help them just to, to move, right, to move out of Florida. Help them just to, to disappear. Help them do something. 
right? You can do it, like Houdini can do it. You can do it, just help them to get out of my life. Whatever. We, we, these are the things that we ask for. But what does David say? Since this is the one thing I ask. God, this one thing only. And if I can rub the magic genie and, and, and God comes out and I can just have one thing left. He's like, this is my, my antidote to fear. says that I may gaze upon your beauty all the days of my life. Like, that's how we can overcome every fear. Because he says, if not this fear, I can ask you for one thing and you could do away with this fear, but other fears are going to come in my life. And if you can just give me this, God, that I may dwell in your house. He's not saying, oh, I want to sleep in your temple or let's have a lock-in and have a slumber party at the temple. He's saying the place where God's presence is most clearly understood, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to be, the place where God's glory dwells. And he's saying this began maybe as an antidote for fear, but it quickly becomes his lifelong desire, his lifelong obsession, his eternal occupation, that I just want to be with him forever. Isn't that how it is sometimes in, in Christian life? Like we come to God because we need something. Or we come to God because of something we can get out of it. We come to God because of some benefit that we can get from him. Like, that's how it was for me. Like, I, I, the first time Jesus became wonderful to me was when my teacher said, either you're going to go to hell or you're going to go to heaven. Hell, there's fire like forever, and you can't die. And you can't like, say stop or time out. You burn forever, or you can go to heaven. I'm like, heck yeah, I want to go to heaven. Right? That's how it is for a lot of people. Like We come to Jesus for utilitarian purposes, but then it begins to evolve, doesn't it? It should, right? Not just what, so I had this, this uh, I was laying down with Elijah in bed. He's our five-year-old. We were laying down a few nights ago, and uh, he, uh, he, some reason he was like in this pensive spiritual mood, and he said, Daddy, where's Jesus right now? I said, Jesus is, uh, he's in heaven, uh, but for those who trust in Jesus, he lives within our hearts. It's like, how does, how does he do that? Like, how does he live? How does he live in me? I said, not Jesus physically, but his spirit. Right? When you trust him and you say, Jesus, I want you, his spirit, and he wants a spirit. And so I started talking about, you know, this like uh, systematic theology for five-year-olds. old, five year olds. And I said, you know, Elijah, if you, uh, you want to you be in heaven, daddy's going to go to heaven after my life is done. Daddy's going to be in heaven. I want you to be in heaven too. And he said, if I don't go to heaven, then uh, there's another place. Right? And maybe he, he, he thinks it's bad to say it. But I said, yeah, the Bible says that place is called hell. He said, bad people go there. I said, no, 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 Elijah, it's not, it's not, it's not that bad people go there. Uh, because daddy is a bad person. Daddy does a lot of bad things. In my, when I was younger, I did a lot of bad things. Even now I do bad things. But it's not about being bad or good. It's e- even if, you've, if you're a bad person, you've done bad things, if you trust Jesus and say, I'm sorry, I want you to forgive me for all the bad I did, and I want you to take me to heaven, then even bad people will be in heaven. And he thought about that for a while, and then he rolled over. He's like, Daddy, I want to go to heaven. So we've had this conversation before. We've prayed uh, through different prayers. And so, you know, at some point it's going to stick. At some point it's going to land within his heart. He's going to really get it um, if he hasn't already. But I said, okay, Elijah, pray, uh, pray this after me. And so we started praying. And then he said, Daddy, I want to go to heaven because in heaven uh, you can do things you can't do on earth, right? And I said, yeah. 
And he said, can, do you think when I go to heaven I can be a Power Ranger? I said, you know, maybe you can do that. He said, can I, um, can I swallow my gum? <laughs> I said, yeah, I think you can swallow your gum. He said, can I ice people? <laughs> I said, what does ice people mean? Like, can I turn them into ice? I said, I don't know, maybe. You know, maybe you can do that and then they'll like melt away and, and yeah. I said, can I, can I just poop wherever I want? <laughs> I said, yeah, you can do that too. I think you can do that. He, he said, can I, can I turn people into food and into candy and eat them? I said, I, I don't know if you can do that, but yeah, there are a lot of things that you can do. Our bodies are going to be perfect and we're able to do things that we couldn't. So he thought about it and he's like, yeah, maybe Jesus and, and me, we can ice people together. <laughs> I said, yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be really cool. That's his understanding of heaven. Like, I, I don't want to go to hell because in his mind, like, mean people, bad people go there who don't repent of their sins. And his understanding of heaven is, yeah, there's a lot of cool things that I can do there. But as he grows and as he matures, begin to realize that coming to God is a whole lot more than about our benefit. It's simply about the beauty of the one that we've come to seek. It becomes like, I'm afraid. I've got all of these fears in my life, and so I hear that I need to come before Jesus and come before God and gaze upon his beauty, and I do that, and all of a sudden I realize that my fears are beginning to melt away, and my fears are beginning to shrink and get smaller and smaller and smaller, and a confident faith is rising up, and man, that's what I need because every day of my life I face different fears, and I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and somewhere along the line we begin to shift in our thinking that gazing upon Jesus' beauty isn't just an antidote for fear, but it becomes a blessing and an end in itself that I see the beauty of Jesus and then I begin to realize what Paul meant. The one thing that David wanted was the one thing that Paul wanted, to know Christ more. The one thing that that David wanted, the same thing that Paul wanted, is the one thing that Mary wanted, to just sit and gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. We realize that the one thing in life is always going to be the one thing, the same thing, to sit upon the, the, the feet of Jesus and to look upon him in his beauty and to say, Jesus, all of you is more than enough for all of me, that you are the one beautiful beyond description, that you are everything that I need, that I don't need all of these other things that I think I need, that you are more than enough. He says, one thing I see, not God plus all these other things. He says, you alone are the one that I need. You alone are the one that I need, and that alone can satisfy the longings of my heart in such a way that I don't want this just to get me through this difficult season, but all the days of my life, I want this. All the days of my life. And the promise of God is that this is your inheritance. If you find the one thing that that rich young ruler lacked, if you find the one thing that Paul longed for, if you find the one thing that Mary had, then that life begins the moment you believe and it continues on into eternity. That for all of your days on earth and for all of your days forevermore, to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus is not just a cure for fear, but it is our eternal occupation. That's what makes heaven beautiful. That's what makes Christianity so beautiful. Not because of all of the things that I can get, but it's because you get Jesus. And that is the heartbeat of Christianity. Do you know him? Have you got Jesus in your life? It's not about being good or bad. It's not about coming to church. 
is not about spending all of these days in church. It's whether you have Jesus in your life and whether he has a hold of your heart. It's like in the movie Shrek, the first one, after Shrek and Donkey rescue Fiona from the clutches of the dragon when dragon falls in love with Donkey and then gets banished and, and then Fiona gets rescued. And Shrek has his ogre's mask on to cover his face. And she says, take off your mask. I want to see your face. He says, no, I can't. He's an ogre. She says, why not? This is how it's supposed to go. Right? The damsel in distress gets rescued, and this romance begins, and take off your helmet. He says, I can't. I've got helmet head or whatever it is. And, and she says, okay, let me, let me say the line. Right? Thine deed is great. Thy heart is pure. Let me gaze upon the face of my rescuer. Because that's the desire of the heart of everyone who has been rescued from a danger, from, from certain death. When we get rescued from that, is not our desire to gaze upon the beauty of the one who has saved us. The reason why we can say that he is my light, he is my salvation, he's my stronghold, is because Jesus, who the only one who could say those things, on that one moment in time, when he wanted to sing this song to the Father, it says, darkness fell over the face of the earth, and the one who called out for light was shut out in dark. The reason we can say you are my light is because Jesus lost the light of the Father in heaven. The reason we can say that you are my salvation is because at the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of every bad person, every evil person, and every good person who ever lived so that we don't trust in our goodness and we don't run from our badness, but we run to Christ who is our salvation. The reason we can say you're my stronghold is because in that moment the shelter that protected the Son of God was removed and the wrath of God came upon Jesus, the wrath that you and I deserved for all of our sin, for all of our fear, for all of the things that cause us to run from God. And there at the cross we begin to realize this is what perfect love looks like. And John, the beloved apostle, who knelt before the cross, the only disciple who was there, Later writes on that it is perfect love that drives out fear. Right? This is what we have in Christ. This is what we have in Christ. And the beauty and the privilege to gaze upon the face of our God until one day when stripped from all of our sin and all of the brokenness of this world, we see him face to face. That will be the ultimate that will be the ultimate in all of our joy, in all of our glory, to see him, to gaze upon him. And from that time on and then forevermore, that will be our eternal obsession, our longing, our desire. And finally, it will be our reality. Let's pray. What are you, what are you fearing this morning? What are you afraid of this morning? Psalm 27 and the teaching of Scripture is not that we ignore those things or that we pretend they don't exist. But it says we bring these things before the Lord God and in His presence as we gaze upon His beauty, right, the more we gaze upon the beauty of Jesus, His greatness, His grandeur, 
the smaller our fears become. Let's do that. Let's take 10 seconds, pray for your fear, and then let's take 30 seconds, 60 seconds, and let's just gaze upon Jesus. Say, Lord, I want to see you. I want to see you. I want to see you. I want to see you because that not only overcomes my fear, but it allows me to see the beauty of Jesus. This is what I was made for. Let's spend a, a minute or two right now just praying to the Lord God. Yeah, let's pray just a minute or two. Let's gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. That shrinks our fears. And that becomes the one place that we long to be, a place where I see the glory of God, the beauty of God, gazing upon him. Let's do that for a couple moments, and then I'll close us in prayer, and we'll continue to respond through songs of praise and worship where we can continue to look upwards and look to the Lord God. Father in heaven, we come to you today. Maybe it's the case that every day we wake up, we're confronted by fears. Some of them are dull, long-lasting fears. It's fears that loom over us. Fears about our future. Fears about whether you can really take care of us. Fears about whether our kids are going to grow up hating you and hating us. Fears about our family. Right? These things are dull, long-lasting fears. And maybe others of us wake up with acute fears, fears of what's going on today, right this, this very day. This fearful conference that we have, this difficult exam that we have, a, an interview that so much of life seems to depend upon. Whatever it is, most of us will readily admit that we wake up each morning with some kind of fears that will face us during the day. Father, we thank you that these fears, when we give them to you, become a great opportunity for us to see the beauty of Jesus, to see how lovely you are, to see how powerful you are, to see how beautiful and altogether worthy you are to realize that you plus nothing else our soul's delight our heart's satisfaction so Jesus help us to gaze upon your beauty to glance at the things around us that cause us fear and anxiety but to gaze at you that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face that the things of earth would grow strangely dim the light of his glory and grace. Melt our hearts.
with a joyful surrender to you. Melt our hearts that fear would dissipate and worship would arise, that we would fall in love with you because you're beautiful and because you've loved us first. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray.